Hello and welcome to Journeys, a series of podcasts from Cultural Enterprises. My name is Jill Fennick and I am the Chief Executive of the Association for Cultural Enterprises. Over the course of the series, I will be chatting with colleagues from across the cultural sector, all in senior roles and commercial activities, in a bid to unearth the person behind the job title. This series was prompted by a reflection on my own journey in our sector, much of which was more by accident than design, and a curiosity about the journeys of others. We'll find out how they got here, what they've learned along the way, and their thoughts on the future of our sector. I hope you enjoy the series. Today, I have with me Adam Thau. Adam is Head of Commercial Activities at Kew Gardens and has been there for two years. Welcome, Adam. We're so pleased you could join us. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here, Jill. I'd like to start off with a broad question, if I could, about how you started out in the sector. It was almost by accident, to be honest. Um, I was working in promotional marketing, so a long time ago, straight out of university. This was when I was importing large amounts of goods, which we branded up for blue chips, um, so, you know, oh. giving away promotional <laughs> pens and things. Um, and this was... This is before literally everyone imported everything from China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, uh, what was then the Two Sods Group, which is now Merlin, you know, big beast. Oh, yeah. um, they were keen to have a buyer on board who worked in the Far East and understood imports. So I joined their central buying team for all of the visitor attractions in the group um, when they first centralized the functions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and from then, I've been lucky enough to work for some of the most amazing cultural attractions in London, if not the world. I've got a note of some of them here that I've known you at, so because we've known each other a long time, I think, but Natural History Museum, South Bank, Barbican, Sir John Soane Museum, and now Q. Does that sum them up, or were there others that I missed? No, that's them. Um, some of the most amazing buildings in London, I think. Yeah. Did you just see the job advertised at NHM and, and thought, that's for me. I mean, I think after Two Swords, I was quite keen to use my my powers for good. Not that Two Swords was evil, but there was, <laughs> there was always the attraction to do something where you knew you were giving something back to something that was contributing to the greater good, be that education or the arts or... And I've always been fascinated by museums and galleries. I, I didn't grow up being necessarily very used to them because Aberdeen doesn't have a huge amount. But as soon as I moved to London, I became obsessed with that kind of cultural scene and and absolutely obviously adored all of the buildings and the work that they do in South Ken. So you were a visitor long before you were an employee in that case? Oh definitely. So having got into this sector then and into the role at Kew, what would you say is the best aspect of your current role? Well I think all of the places that I've worked it's always been about the people and you know those amazing venues and collections themselves and I think um, in addition to that at Kew the the diversity of what I'm doing. Um, my, my remit's very broad here. It mm-hmm. covers short courses, publishing, retail, e-commerce, venue hire, filming, brand licensing, and you know the big commercial events that we have, including Key the Music and Christmas at Key. So there's there's kind of so much going on on a daily basis. It can sometimes make your head spin. I think I really thrive on that. The sort of the high energy, the buzz. Um, I love working with so many different teams as well and working where I do I just you know I'm working with science, horticulture, uh, legal, the archives teams, just kind of learning so much every day and I, you can't really ask for more than that in a job I don't think. No not really I, I do envy you actually the academic side of it as well you know the fact that you're working with 
real live academic research must be you know it's it's few people have that kind of role are you actually charged with trying to think of other ways of generating self-generated income or no. Yes, and um, you know, at the moment we're kind of looking for the forward three-year plan, but I think all of the time we're, and particularly after the last couple of years, we're always looking at you know what are the new opportunities for generating income and and elevating the brand and putting it out there more as well. So obviously last year we couldn't put on a lot of our our bigger commercial events, so we we did lots of trials, we did small well-being events, which you know, didn't get caught up in the COVID restrictions, but still were kind of core mission and quite low impact on the gardens. Yeah. Um, you mentioned working with scientists and actually I work quite closely with our commercial innovation unit, which sits in science, mm -hmm. which is identifying where there's opportunities for key scientists to work with big companies or small companies um, to use the skills that they have to fix a problem, to um, authenticate ingredients, to check the supply chain. Um, and I, it, I have to admit, it's, it's not something I thought I'd ever find my way into when I started working in no. this industry, but it's fascinating, totally fascinating. And I assume, being Q, that, that there is a huge emphasis on environmental sustainability and that would transcend the commercial areas. Is that the case? Yes, I mean, um, we have a manifesto for change, which is, um, you know, the, the commitments that the, the garden as a whole is making to be carbon mm -hmm. negative um, in 10 years, I think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a new head of sustainability who joined almost a year ago, and we work really closely with her. I mean, we, I like to think we're, we, we've done okay. Um, you know, we, as part of our ISO accreditation, we get audited in retail in terms of environmental impact, FSC accreditation mm -hmm. on paper. Um, and so we've always done quite well with that. And we, we phased out the kind of single use plastic a few years ago. We're working to becoming peat free um, mm -hmm. and all of this kind of plants and horticultural stuff. But there's, there's obviously more we can do. And it's, it's difficult in, a, in an environment like Kew, where we're putting on huge events like Christmas at Kew, where we don't have um, access to hot power, we're relying on generators. But we we working with the industries to to use hydrogen power generators we were among the first that used it we work with our caterers so that there's zero waste and we we work with them to look at their supply chains um it's kind of woven into everything we do as, as you would expect i guess mm -hmm. what are you most proud of i think in my professional life it was almost the the biggest challenge as such and I wasn't there for very long, but the, the time that I was there at the Barbican, I managed to get permission to to work on the design of the build of a huge shop in the Barbican foyers. Um, mm -hmm. Worked with the amazing um, buyer and merchandiser there at the time to really go from something very small to something huge, um, and and to work on bespoke stock. To be quite honest, by the time that it was completed, I was almost broken. There was just challenge after challenge after challenge, including as we were just about to open enormous sheets of glass that were getting lowered into place by cranes, which shattered and put their opening back by a few weeks. But I kind of went in cold to, to a fairly, in what can be quite an intimidating, large organisation, multi-layered. There were lots of people that weren't on board in terms of the commercial offering managing to turn all of that around and even those that didn't necessarily love the shop being there they kind of acknowledged that actually it was being done well it fitted into the foyer spaces it was integral to the mission of what an art center should be doing in terms of working with artists and designers and and creating something that people felt um 
was accessible and welcoming and so just just that whole challenge really and I'm, I'm still immensely proud of it I haven't been back for a while but I'm still in touch with the teams that I worked for then and it was just so much pressure in such a compressed space that I think it's something that I'll always remember. That was about the time I do remember you probably first came onto certainly my radar as, and people always referred to you as this young bright emerging talent who was going to go places and boy they were right you see it's, uh, <laughs> it's oh. funny that you remember it as, a, as an exciting moment as well it's not funny but it's actually really really heartening so when you made that step up you know into a big organization did you find as many of us do I think that there's a point in your career where you not exactly have a mentor but somebody who you regard as being someone worth taking notice of was that the point in, in the Barbican where that happened? I mean, I think everywhere I've been, uh, I've always found someone that's hugely inspirational and mm -hmm. who's hugely supportive. Um, and actually, at South Bank Centre, it was it was someone that just gave me a huge amount of creative freedom. So, yeah, you know, they they didn't micromanage. They let me take calculated risks. I think at the the Barbican, it was. Um, I mean, it's very business orientated, you know, that it answers to the City of London Corporation. Cool. So from from that perspective, it's I think it's a bit almost a bit like the BBC, you know, very can be very bureaucratic. But again, given a huge amount of support, um, particularly from, you know, the top management team there to, to, to get this thing done, to achieve, to create this. Um, networks that they made everything work did anybody give you a, a particular piece of advice in your career that was extremely useful to you or helpful or made you feel you know you could you could do this kind of thing yeah and it, i suppose it was somewhat a controversial and unexpected piece of advice and it, and it came from someone in finance who you normally expect <laughs> to be very very conservative with a small c um, yes, absolutely. and very cautious but it was it was near the beginning of when I was working on a huge project and and it's a well-known phrase but they just said that they it sometimes it's easier to ask forgiveness than to seek permission <laughs> uh, um, and actually I'm, I'm generally a rule follower it, it does you know I don't write roughshod over the rules um, I'm generally very respectful of all these things however on that occasion and there's been a few occasions since and you know particularly during again the pandemic where we had to make snap decisions where you know not everyone's necessarily available it affects potentially lots of people um and sometimes big finances and having to make that snap decision where you think oh, actually yeah, i know that the outcome is going to be a positive mm -hmm. um and i'm going to go for it. it it really did empower me it made me braver and possibly less conservative for the small c than i had been before that is an excellent piece of advice. I'm <laughs> going to write that one down. Actually. And when I do something, you know, completely useless, I shall say, well, I heard that from Adam. <laughs> You're going to regret this now, haven't I? <laughs> but if you flip that that one over, then is is there a piece of, of advice you would pass on to people coming up through the industry? Yeah, and I think you know I applied it in all of the circumstances where there's been major obstacles to overcome, and it was, it, it almost contradicts. <laughs> The advice that I that I took but it's just always to take people on the journey with you it's you know I think in even now in in some of the organizations that we work for there's going to be people that, that think of the commercial side as a necessary evil and in inverted commas and it's so much easier to, to, to win them over and to get them on your side to, to understand your motives and to make them realize it's all part of the wider greater good to, to be able to achieve you know a difficult piece of work if you don't get that encouragement and assistance then it's just 
it's not going to happen easily. And I found, you know, as I said, even the people that didn't necessarily want this huge shop in the Barbican Foyer, they, they didn't stand against it because I made the compelling argument and, and spoke to them in their language. And I think it's just really important to not not work in silos and and to engage those who don't work in the commercial side with what you're doing and, and get them to understand what it is that you're doing. I would add to that, I guess, um, that, that, that yes, if you can make a compelling business case for something, yep. that's absolutely at the foundation of, of success, really, isn't it? It's it's when, like I do occasionally, go, I go in with some, you know, highfalutin idea, but I haven't actually done the, the figures yet. It, it's the wrong way around to do it. That's what I've learned, you know, do the figures first and then see if it works. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the finances are, are core to everything. But I think um, if you're dealing with people that just don't have a corporate or commercial mindset, actually talking to them in their own language helps. So, you know, the, the objectives of the organisation, be the artistic, creative, whatever, if you can frame your work in those terms, it just makes it so much easier to break through, I think. How do you see the future of cultural retail over the next five years? Well, I think we've been on a journey and I think I think we're going to have to continue it, really. It's I, I kind of do believe in continuous improvement. And I think we've we've all got to become a bit slicker, even the really slick ones. Um, <laughs> if we're going to keep up with wider retail trends, but also customers expectations, um, mm -hmm. I think obviously technology is going to lead the way in terms of how customers are going to engage with us. Um, but also how we're going to manage with our stock or stores and our staff, it's all going to be technology led and I think um, I think institutions will need to be joined up as to how they sell and market their whole culture to customers. Um, yeah. I think it means customers journeys need to be incredibly aligned. Um, you know if you're buying a ticket or a membership or you're donating or if you're buying something from the shop you mean to make things these things easy for people and, and technology is a huge enabler but um, I think almost everyone is going to have to grasp the kind of nettle of omni-channel trading and I'm sure not everyone's keen on the idea but I think from a customer's perspective it makes so much sense and it's the only way that we're going to maximize income from from people who are incredibly loyal to us. So I mentioned changes then Adam what do you think might well change in the near and, and not too distant future? When I think I mentioned tech and we're already seeing demand from our customers who want our spaces to be more flexible so obviously there's there's always going to be a physical retail space but actually it should be doing more than it just does and our customers are already telling us that um, they don't want to carry shopping around with them all day or or necessarily have to get on the tube with it all can we make life easier for them can we put out QR codes for them to you know just add products in the shop which they've they've seen and touched and and know that they like to to a to an online basket and just make that easy for them and I think you know lots of of the galleries and the and uh, cultural retailers already do kind of great stuff in in their shops and realize that it isn't just a a transactional space so workshops and talks and tastings and classes and I just think we're going to see more of that we I think we're going to have to give people more reason to visit these commercial spaces when they're on their visits I mean I think for everyone environmental and social responsibilities in terms of what they're doing I think there's huge demand from every generation for um, incredibly high standards you know carbon footprints reductions in packaging food miles ethical sourcing um, I mean, I mentioned peat free, that's a very small step in a much wider circle. And I think people, are, you're going to have to have information readily available, including, you know, in our catering outlets, you know, how far is this 
language traveled and you know what impact does it have um and and to the to the very basics you know i think this throwaway pocket money toys that that, that was a bread and butter of so many museum shops for years they their days are done. Ultimately, I think as a consequence of this, we we have to realize that we can't compare with Primark and you know these mm-hmm. low price, high volume stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually, we need to have a bit of confidence and uh, work with craft and functionality and quality, and but really kind of trumpet that authenticity and and be confident with perhaps higher pricing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, and I wonder if. I wonder if there's um, a necessity really to revisit the roots of where our success lay pre-COVID, which was always what set us apart from the high street, was the the stories we have to tell. So the connection between the product in the shop and the actual collections or the venue or the the site in Q's case, uh, and collections, obviously. And to kind of find some way of tying those back together again, because there is a dislocate when people shop online, even if they're shopping, you know, on Q's website, that they haven't had that experience. They haven't smelt the flowers. They haven't felt the rain on the head. They haven't touched the trees and then been inspired to go into the shop to look for something that gives them that taking part of their day away. There's that really strong element between the story and the product, isn't there? That that just so hard to achieve even in a small way, online and not on, on site. And I, and I think how we can be better at trying to get some of those emotional responses to those who are only going to transact online as well. You know, mm. we saw when yeah. we had to close the gardens during the pandemic that actually filming rustling leaves, lapping water, you know, trying to capture some of the essence about Q whilst it was closed, yeah. people reacted so enormously to it and I know it was very particular set of circumstances but I think if you can capture some of that um spirit of the moment that emotional responses um and and not in a manipulative way but you kind of translate it to you know this is this is what you're helping this is what we're we're about and what we're talking about I think that's right the zeitgeist and whatever What is your favourite work of art, in inverted commas, and why? So it doesn't have to be a painting, obviously, clearly. I'm terrible answering these questions, Jill. And, <laughs> and, and it's it's not a cop-out, I swear, but it's... Um, I kind of think back to when when art has, like, completely moved me. And I remember the first time it happened, uh, I was kind of, like, struck speechless. And I, wow. I, did, I hadn't realised that art could have that effect, and it wasn't... I wasn't young it was but it was just it was the connection that really surprised me and um it was it was the first time I saw Bridget Riley's work at the Serpentine Gallery in the late 90s so it was a collection I think of her work from the 60s and 70s and it just totally dazzled me and thrilled me Um, and I still adore her work I think she's a genius um and there's been other artists that where that, I mean, such a force and an effect that I, th- I think that's why it's difficult to go. There's one piece of work, but the, uh, the, I do remember the last time it happened as well, and it does happen periodically. So mm-hmm. the last one was an exhibition um, which had a similar effect, even though it's incredibly different work, uh, by uh, Leon Spilliart. It was at the the Royal Academy, and I went mm-hmm. to see it maybe a month before we were all locked down in 2020. Um, and like I say, it couldn't have been more different from Riley's but it's it was quiet it was haunting it was beautiful and it kind of floored me and it made me curious and wistful and 
um, he's, he's a Belgian artist and it's all about, a lot of it is just about feeling that you get when you're by the sea. And I grew up next to the sea in Aberdeen. And so it's just yeah. that connection was there. And um, I don't know, I just hope I keep having those kinds of reactions and that I never actually decide that I've got a favorite piece of art, to be honest. Well, that's probably a good answer. The fact, <laughs> that, the fact that you're always discovering your favorite piece of art or your favorite work. I think that's, that's a lifetime's journey again, isn't it? Just talking about growing up, by the sea near Aberdeen there must have come a point in your life I guess where somebody before me has asked you where is your happy place or your happiest place it does relate to here and also where I'm from I think it's my, my favorite place isn't necessarily an individual one it's by water so you know I grew up by the sea and and I've always had such a close affinity to to wanting to be by water and especially mm -hmm. actually living and working in London I've, I've always gravitated towards the river and sort it out for comfort in a way but it's just um you know when I was working on the south bank it was always there and I spent so much time by it but um at Kew my favorite spot is um down by Sion Vista so it's at the furthest edges of the garden and um there's a flat clear view across a really peaceful calm calm curve of the Thames mm. um, and it looks out over open space and Sion houses in the distance mm -hmm. um and you can completely feel like you're in the middle of nowhere for a very short period and then all the planes from Heathrow go overhead <laughs> you, you turn around and you see the Tempera house and you're completely brought back to space but just the effect that being by water has yeah. kind of never fails and you know during during the lockdowns um, of the past few years as soon as I could get anywhere it was to the lakes or as to the seaside it was just that kind of instant therapy almost after being trapped in the city and trapped in an apartment for what seemed like Absolutely, forever. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the sea in particular, I think, gives you a sense of perspective. It's a, a cliche, again, to say that it makes you feel insignificant by comparison, you know, as well as being a soothing experience, I find. Anyway, I used to live near the sea many years ago. I appreciate what you're saying. Well, that was fantastic, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really have enjoyed this half hour together. Um, I'm going to go away and tell everyone that it's better to seek forgiveness than permission. <laughs> 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 Even my husband. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I make changes in the house, you know. Um, but no, it's been really insightful and lovely to talk to you in such a, a warm session. Thank you ever so Thank much you. for that. Thanks very much, Jill. Take care.